it was in February 2011 and I woke up one day and just suddenly couldn't speak. I'd had bouts of laryngitis on and off for years, so just presumed it was laryngitis. And then when it hadn't gone after three weeks, I went to the doctors. They referred me to the specialist, a cancer referral. So it was very, very quick. I went and had the tube down my nose to examine my throat. And there was absolutely nothing physically wrong with my, th- uh, wrong with my voice box. Just that I couldn't speak. So and Tell us a little bit about yourself at that time. How old were you? What was your family situation? 42. 42. Um, we were living in Manchester, um, myself, my husband Ray and my daughter Rebecca. Rebecca at that time was very heavily into um, hockey. She was playing for a team in Manchester and the day before my voice went I'd been managing, the, uh, managing her under 13s hockey team and just presumed that it was because I'd been shouting too much, talking too much and just thought it was, uh, just thought it was overuse but it didn't come back. <laughs> and so you were sent to a specialist, the suspicion was that it might be cancer that was causing this, but there was no physical cause identified? No physical cause whatsoever. Um, they put the tube down, no, tube down my nose and looked at my throat and everything was physically was fine. So they decided quite quickly after that that it was um, a mental health problem that was causing the, uh, causing the reason why I couldn't speak. And I was diagnosed with a condition called psychogenic aphonia, which is basically loss of voice for psychological problems rather than physical problems. Now, when you say that you couldn't speak... Could you whisper? Could you say something in a hoarse voice? I had a very small whisper during the day and apparently I could speak perfectly normally when I was asleep. I held conversations with my husband during the night. I knew nothing about them, but he said that I was speaking to, speaking perfectly. So you were referred then to, what, a psychiatrist? She was down under a, a speech and language therapist, but it was more, uh, more psychological counselling that I had. And I didn't do any speech and language work until my voice nine months later started coming back. It was all talking through or whispering through problems that I'd had um, in my childhood. Were you aware of having had problems in your childhood? Yes. <laughs> I had had problems with my mum. Me and my mum didn't have a very good relationship. Up until my sister was born, I had a very good relationship with my dad. And then when my sister was born, it, that went as well. I felt, uh, felt unloved. I felt um, constantly criticised. I wasn't encouraged to develop as a person and make decisions for myself. I was very controlled. Everything had to be done by the book. Even as much as being told at the age of 18 when I was going off to university that I wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend. I met Ray as I was going into my final year at university and was absolutely terrified of telling my parents that I'd met someone that I really liked because I'd been told I was not allowed to have a boyfriend until after I'd got my degree. So this was a controlling relationship on behalf of, what, both your mum and your dad? Mainly my mum, but my dad's, uh, dad tended to let it go. He was the one that just didn't intervene, didn't stand up for me, didn't do, uh, didn't do anything, but it was my mum that was the controlling one I had all the problems with. 
but that was when you were 18, leaving to go to university. You lost your voice when you were 42. How was that link made? The psychologist that I spoke to, the speech and language psychologist I spoke to regularly uh, each week, brought it back to uh, brought it back to that and said that because of uh, because of that, and I also once I'd left home, I then started hearing my mum's voice in my head criticising me, everything I did uh, was wrong, everything me and Ray tried to do, how can anyone um, how can anyone want to love you type thing, all these things were said in my head, in my mum's voice and kind of I think it just built up and something, we'd, we'd, no one still, know, still knows what it was that, uh, that was the final straw that broke the camel's back type thing I don't know but the type of uh, type of psychogenic aphonia I suffered from was chronic and that, uh, that apparently means that you can't pinpoint the actual event that triggers it. It's a, an accumulation of things that have happened um, throughout time. At what point during your conversations with the speech and language therapist or speech and language psychologist did that get identified as the source of your silence? I think it was quite early on because I'd been having my mum's voices in my head and I'd told her about this. I think, that's, I think that kind of led to the discussions turning that way. From then on, it was ways of trying to almost build bridges, if I could, which never actually happened. With your mum? With my mum. The first thing my mum said when I saw her after I'd got my voice back was, I've looked this up on the internet and it's nothing to do with me. Not... Oh, I'm glad to hear you can hear you can speak again. Not anything like that. She never apologised. She died three years ago. She never once apologised for the way she treated me, because I don't honestly think that she realised she was doing anything wrong. What was your relationship with your mum and your dad like then in the years after you left university? And obviously you met Ray and he became your husband. How did your relationship with your mum and dad evolve? For some strange reason, I actually went back to live at home. I don't know why. I don't know whether it was. Uh, don't know whether it was the fact that I had. They had such control over me. I don't know. And I went back to live at home when I first started working. And then about three years after I passed my degree, we got married, and we moved it. We moved away, and it was still very controlled you will you will get up uh, you will get a job there you will work you will live there you will not live there and uh, kind of everything was uh, everything was dictated uh, kind of we were uh, we were young I was 24 when we got married so we were still uh, we were still very young and we did we did as we were told many parents are naturally protective of their children and that can lead to being overprotective is that what you think was driving your mum's behaviour? I don't think it was, no. There was lots of incidents, um, lots of incidents with my mum where it just wasn't right. I had a lot of problems when I, uh, when I was younger with my weight and my mum was very, very controlling. She was put, uh, I was put on diet after diet after diet and there was one incident with um, a boiled egg where I was given a boiled egg for breakfast. I didn't want that boiled egg. So I left it. I came home at night, and while everyone else was uh, was served a nice meal, I was served a cold boiled egg, and was told that I couldn't have anything else to eat until that boiled egg had e- had been eaten. It put me off boiled eggs for life, I think. And how old were you when that happened? Um, I was probably about twelve, thirteen when that happened. 
So what was it, do you think, that made your mum like that? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I would have thought if it hadn't have been for my sister, I've got a sister that's 10 years younger than me um, and a brother that's four years older than me. Me and my older brother never had a good relationship with my mum. So I could have said that she just didn't have the ability to love anyone. But then my sister came along and she was everything that my mum wanted. She was totally different with my sister than um, she was with either me or my brother. Many children, though, who have domineering parents kick back and say, well, you're telling me where to live, you're telling me what to do. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to follow my own path. Why do you think you didn't? Maybe it's my personality, I don't know, but I'd been brought up, I wasn't capable because I hadn't been taught, I hadn't been shown how to make decisions for myself. I'd never been allowed to make any decisions for myself. So I think that's, I think that made a big impact. Do you think your mum chipped away at your self-confidence? Definitely, definitely both when she was alive and uh, when I moved out and uh, after she's died. The voices in my head, in some ways more than her actual physical presence, have been more detrimental to my mental health than anything that she probably did did when I was a child. When you talk about voices in your head, all of us have an internal dialogue. We talk with ourselves and maybe imagine what other people close to us might say. Are you talking about something more than that in something, what your mum said? To yeah, you? it was It was nasty. It was um, critical. It was constantly putting me down. It was telling me that I was useless, that no one could ever love me. Do you want me to stop? So how did these voices affect you in your daily living? Um, the biggest thing, uh, the biggest thing that uh, that they affected uh, me with. At that point, I found it very difficult to function in general. I was constantly yeah, going into my shell. I couldn't communicate with anyone. I couldn't communicate with Ray. Our sex life went out of the window basically because whenever we tried to get intimate I had my mum's voice in my head criticising why would he ever want to live uh, want to love you why would anyone want to love you I have a big thing about being in control so anything close to an orgasm I had no way of doing that because obviously you lose all control at that point that went out of the window, so enjoyable sex, no, no. And um, that's your mum's voice. And that was, of course, say, saying what sort of things then? You're not worthy of him. Why would he? Uh, why would he love you? He's only with you because because uh, you can't get anyone else. You're fat. You're ugly. No one's gonna love you. Um, and we often, when we did did manage to uh, manage to have a sexual relationship I often ended up in floods of tears at the end of it um, and you say that these were your mum's voices your mum's voice that you heard yeah did she ever say things like that to you in real life she'd often criticize uh, criticize me for my weights she'd joke 
claim it was a joke. Oh, don't take a photograph, you'll break the camera type of thing. And petty comments like that, the worst ones were all in my head. So they were kind of an exaggeration of Probably were an exaggeration of what she'd said in, said in real life, but they hurt, uh, they hurt even more because I internalised them, I let them eat away at me, and I struggled to cope with it. This is a positive story, ultimately, because nine months later, almost like giving birth, isn't it? <laughs> almost like giving birth, yes. You got your um, voice back. It came back, uh, but it came back with a stutter, which was really weird, and it took... Um, it took that's when the, uh, the actual... Um, Speech therapy started before that it had been all the, all psycho all the psycho stuff. The speech therapy started when it, my voice actually came back, and now whenever I get anxious, whenever I get worried, I do tend to start stuttering again, and find it difficult to get my words out. Did it come back one day, quite forcibly and firmly, albeit with a stutter? Or was it a gradual process? It was quite gradual. Some sounds would come back. So I'd be speaking and then it would go again and then it would come back and it was, uh, it was kind of uh, very, yeah, it was very backwards and forwards. You want your book to be a, a positive influence? I do think it is a positive influence, especially the way it ends. It's a horrible story in some, um, in some respects, but it is a positive ending that my life gets back on track. I now work at the local primary school. I run the breakfast and after school club and I love my job. My job is the thing in lots of ways that keeps me going. It keeps me sane. The kids that I work with, every day is different. I have no qualms going into work. And you say that when your mum passed away then, you, you'd never reconciled with her. She'd never acknowledged the hurt that she'd caused you. She never did, and we've lost almost all contact uh, with my dad. I was so uh, so made up when I got the, got my book um, published. I put on on Facebook about how proud I was that I'd done it. Within seconds, he came back with an angry uh, with an angry face emoji. If you had one message for somebody with a mental health problem or who had a problematic relationship with their parents, as I suspect many people will have done, what would that message be? Keep believing. Keep believing things will get better. They do get better. Find something that you are good at that becomes a release for you. Um, for me, it's my job. There will be something there for you. There is light at the end of the tunnel and things will get better but you have to believe in yourself for that to for that to happen okay thank you okay thank you